Blog Talk Radio. Chuck Creasy, another week of American Tennis, and I we weren't on last week, folks. As you know, it was Thanksgiving week, but oh my golly, for about the 40th uh, summer out of the last 45 years, I had to go recruiting on the road in Florida this time down, uh, gosh, I went to that Eddie Hurd tournament and then also looked at some recruits along the way. But, oh, my golly, Thanksgiving, vacation days, Christmases, Sundays, I told a parent down there, I said, all of your family time is used. Uh, gosh, my wife one time said that, you know, use up all your patience on other people's children. All your family time is used up on other people. That You know, that's just the nature of the beast, I guess, with with tennis. But I was down at the Eddie Hurd Tournament. And I was there recruiting, and I was looking for players, and I was helping out a young youngster, a young 12-year-old youngster that was uh, plugging along and trying to earn his first stripes. And uh, some good stuff, some bad stuff. I, You know, I'm, I'm not a favorite. I did not like that IMG play so much down there. I, I uh, golly, it's just a big old campus now, and it's a bunch of, it's a, a lot of, uh, you know, it's got some good stuff for sure. But I wanted to start out by telling, you know, my program today is meat and potato fundamentals that, that never changed. They were the same back probably in the 1800 and the 1900s and now. But I know for myself, the same fundamentals in 1972 when I first started coaching are still true today. But I wanted to start out by telling you this, that you've got to coach the heart of people. And you, you, you could, you've got to coach people to where their heart, in, they, it's not about forcing or compliance, making people comply to your wishes. Uh, you know, that's the way you train your dog. You get them to comply through hook or crook or treats or you know, punishing, whatever, a dog can be compliant, a pet can be compliant. You know, so sometimes we can force compliance out of people, but we have to coach their heart. It starts with compliance maybe, but then it has to go to commitment, their commitment, their mind, and then you have to go to inspired enthusiasm of their heart. You have to coach their heart. And what I see in a big thing, a big place like IMG a lot is a corporation. I see a corporation there that has, yeah, hundreds of kids come in there with the hope of greatness, and the parents are paying a god-awful amount of money. I, You know, they go down there, and, yeah, some of them get some kind of scholarships, 
And most of the time, I know how this operates. Uh, so let's say it charged 50000 a year to go to a place like that. Well, they might offer your kid a $10,000 or $20,000 scholarship. Well, they're still getting 30 or 40, so they'll probably overprice. And then, and, and I'm not saying that it's not good for some of the kids, but for the most part, it would take, I don't know what it would take for me to send one of my children there away from home to be in that environment. And I don't care how many pros are there or coming out of there or whatever, you've got to, it's not just the exterior of the youngster that you have to train. You have to train their heart. And it and it uh, starts with that. I One of the criticisms that maybe the USTA gets or place like IMG gets or whatever is that they, um, you know, they, they coach to the 70th or 80% point and then they don't go any further. Well, they can't. And, and here's why. There's usually at the levels of relationships are cliches and facts and opinion and feelings and needs, five levels. Well, most of the time when it's a corporate setting, people only go for to cliches and facts. They'll give you the window dressing. Hey, what's going on? Not much. That's a cliche. Then fact. Hey, listen, having trouble with your forehand, okay? Uh, so-and-so won here or so-and-so lost this match. But then they might give a an opinion. Hey, this is what I think you need to do. But it's got to go deeper. And there's where our problem we have is with uh, coaching today, and I don't think we're turning out as many players are, let's say players are not growing to the level that they should be growing to, not the fact that we are not turning out players, but players are not growing to their full potential because you have to get the levels four and five, the feelings and the needs. And you know what? That's very dangerous. Anytime you start going there, it becomes an emotional situation sometimes with success or failure, and it's very, very hard to weather that and endure that. But I um, I just think kids do better in their own homes, their own arenas, because you never are going to care as much about uh, someone that is not that you don't know. I, I don't care what kind of coach you are. You're not going to care as deeply about someone that you're not well acquainted with as you are with someone that you know very, very well. Uh, That's why I'm so much against uh, what we did with the busing of uh, school children when we took kids across town and put them in a different neighborhood, in a different school. Well, first of all, they don't have loyalty to those kids there at first. Uh, Now, they might learn after a while, but their neighborhood, their arena, and when you do that, kids don't, um, just do things emotionally to to a level deep enough. They don't care enough. And uh, gosh, I, I think we've botched what, I, what I'm thinking about it here. We're on this topic. We've botched up a lot of things in our country um, by eliminating schools, uh, elementary school, and a lot of times junior high sports. Like in elementary school sports, uh, we've turned it over to Maybe the you know the YMCA or uh, the Little League or whatever the community uh, sports program. So to, instead of playing for, I played for the St. Catherine. We used to call our Saint the St. Catherine Cats, or we didn't really have a nickname. But I, I grew up in a parochial school. But you you played the sports with the same kids. You grew up with the same kids. You wanted to beat the other schools, the other parochial schools around. You developed loyalty to each other, and the coaches knew your parents and families, and and, uh, everybody knew everybody. And uh, when when we start busing all the kids around, especially uh, in our schools, a lot of times you'll have kids from different sides of town. Of course, the transportation issue becomes a problem. Uh, of course, the busing destroyed the after-school sports we used to have with, um, you know, with the coaches there who were teachers, local teachers, running the sports. 
But I think in smaller communities, if you are in a smaller community, I would fight like crazy for elementary school sports and fight for for um, the opportunity for kids to um, play sports in their neighborhood and play sports with um, the kids that they grew up with. We We really do not nurture to the level that we need to and we don't get to know kids to the level and guess what the kids aren't going to be as passionate as they need to be so anyhow i got off talking about it because i was down at that img place and i go whoa sure in the world would not ever send my kid here and no slam on people that work there i'm sure sure you've done good work some but it's whole it's very hard to coach the heart away from home we have, a, we have a sport, the sport of tennis, where you've got to travel. And I, I know you get to know people at different places. And I'm not saying it's not possible, but you sure need to uh, coach the heart first if you, if you want to go anywhere. And I think that's why I've always loved college coaching and team coaching so much, is that you get to know your youngsters for such a long period of time. But anyhow, it, it was is pretty interesting. Now, the other thing is, it was really discouraging. Either even at the Eddie Hur, they played the, uh, the Dagon singles and the twelve and unders. They played a tiebreaker for the third set. I even went up and saw the head tournament referee, and I said, "Why? Why are you guys doing this?" He said, "Oh, we're being forced to." So, I think the main headquarters, USTA guys, there. What the heck are you thinking? All of the learning takes place in the third set. It's shameful. It wasn't about time. They're, again, playing a tiebreaker for the third set, as most of you have heard me say. Uh, there's there's several, several problems, but the best player doesn't win. Uh, it doesn't it eliminates all the, te- the learning taking place. The rights of passage, 100% of the time, if you're a tennis player out there, you'll remember your best matches ever and the rites of passage when you won 7-5 in the third and finally got over the hump and knew that you were better than a player, and then you went forward. And if you lost that 7-5 in the third, usually it hurt a lot. But what we're doing is we have eliminated with the 10-point tiebreaker the rite of passage that a player must earn to go from one level to another level. This is a game of levels. Um, so if you win in a 10-point tiebreaker, you don't really get the confidence you should. And if you lose it, it doesn't really hurt enough to make you really to uh, – you don't gain the desire. It really, you don't gain the hate of losing that you need. You have to hate losing before you ever go forward. Losing should be painful. It should make you go forward. So anyhow, listen, I wanted to throw this in as we start. I don't want to get off too far off track here this morning, but I did want to give all of you out there, and I passed out some of these cards, but I've come up with, if you're going to use abbreviated scoring, I want you to know in order what the best scoring systems are. Do you want the right person or the better player to win? based on their hard work, based on their practices, based on their skill set. Well, let me tell you, these are the orders about that you would go in and picking, trying to figure out how to have the best player win. Number one is if you play three out of five full sets traditional scoring like you do at the Grand Slams, you know what? The best player is going to win. And that's pretty obvious. You look at the Grand Slam winners, it takes some a special – person to win one of those grand slams to go through the three out of five sets on the men's side. Number two, two out of three full sets on the women's side, and most of our tournaments have been two out of three full sets, traditional scoring, your best player is going to win. That's good for development. It's good for the true results. Three out of five sets, you very seldom get an imposter or a pretender or a poser that works through three out of five set matches and wins anything that is significant. Two out of three, it happens more but less often than the next things. Let's talk about two out of three. Number three, if look, if you had to do something abbreviated, instead of that 
silly 10-point tiebreaker. Number three would be two out of three sets. Set one and two, play full sets. And then maybe number three, you start at 2-2. Two, two. Just start at 2-2 two, two at 3-3. Three, three. That saves 15 minutes. If that's what it's about, you'd start at 3-3 three, three or 4-4. Four, four, that would be better than that silly, silly, silly 10-point tiebreaker. I want to tell you a real quick story. You know how they dream, dream that up? It's not like a group of scientists sat around a room and said, how can we come up with the best tie-breaking system when a match gets close? Do a 10-point tiebreaker. No, it was a, a uh, dog bone thrown out there in the 19, early 1990s when a college match was being played and it had already been clinched how to sort of get it over with fast. Somebody just said, oh, try a 10-point tiebreaker. <clears throat> and guess what? Somebody said, oh, okay. And then they used it a few times. And listen to this one. They experimented one time at the National Indoors. And the University of Georgia took a loss to Lander College at, the, at, at that year, not at the University, not at the National Indoors, but at a match they were playing that season that the you know, the national indoors, there was upset after upset after upset when you used a 10-point tiebreaker. Still, it's a bad, bad system, so it would be better, number three, if you can't play out the third set completely, start at 2-2 two, two in the third set. How about number four would be better than what we do now? Set one and two, you could start those at 2-2. Two, two. But the third set needs to be a full set. Why? Because you want the better, best player to win. So number four, I'm recommending, you know, maybe do the abbreviated set, but you must have a full set for the deciding set or you get the poser. You get the person who is not the better player to go forward. It's not a legitimate rite of passage. How about number five? This is better than the tiebreaker for the third set. It's not called the tiebreaker. It's called the icebreaker. A high school coach up in Tennessee, Coach Brian Rohr up there, he came up with this idea. It's called the icebreaker. Folks, this is what you would do. You play number one. If you got to play that silly, silly, silly 10-point tiebreaker, you play it the first set. Now think about it. When you play it the third, you're given a whole set credit for it, why not just play the tiebreaker the first set? If you do that, your best player will win always as well. Because think about this. If the lesser player wins that first set 10-point tiebreaker, they'll never, ever lose the match. I promise you they will win set two and three. If they win the first set tiebreaker, it just takes less time than ever. But the icebreaker is better than that thing. Then, all right, this is what the USTA is throwing out there, the sixth best thing. Why would they use the sixth best thing? Two out of three sets, all of them start at 2-2. Two, two. But hear me out on this. As I met with the UTR guys, they said the only time you have credible results is when you play games to four and you must win by two. So you could do these mini sets or micro sets or shortened sets especially if you play with the old fogies or if you play in the senior groups or maybe the little bitty kids and introducing them to tennis, and it's not too bad. But why not just start at 2-2? Don't call them for something. It's, you know, look, folks, just start at 2-2, do that, and it's okay. It's not that bad to do. Look, when I have to hurry up practice at the end and I want to find out who the better player is, sometimes I'll do it, but I'll never use no ad to find out who the better player is. Hey, by the way, I don't even use, I never use no ad in the fall, and I, I ask every coach that we play against to play traditional scoring because I want the best player to win. But mainly I want my players to learn how to play tennis. Number seven, ha, ah, this is what we're using in college tennis. Why would we use the seventh best thing? It's because nobody thought it through. Jimmy Van Allen was not necessarily the most – I'm not – he wasn't a scientific guy when he came up with the no-ad 
deal. I think it was just something they threw out there and didn't think about it. I've been through it so many times about how, how bad it is on game point to have an eight-point swing. Why does no one understand that no ad tennis, there is an eight-point swing on game point? So cheating is now paramount. Oh, they have that lead cord rule. How stupid is that lead cord rule? It's the stupidest thing I've ever seen to have that lead cord rule for game point. It's an eight-point swing. So if you get a lead cord, that is worth eight 40-ball rallies where you sliced until the guy was cramping. It's that same value. How pathetic is that? Do you really think our kids are going to learn how to slice the backhand 40 times if they can get a lead cord on game point or they get a good call on game point? So we use the seventh best thing. I'm not even going to – you've heard me talk enough about it. But when you use no-add scoring, you dilute, pollute, and you prostitute the game and the results. Number eight. Two out of three sets, no add. Huh. Huh. No, seven was two out of three sets, tiebreaker for the third. Number eight was two out of three sets, no add. We use that for college. Huh. What about what they doing? <laughs> ha. This thing. Two out, n- number nine is two out of three sets, no add, tiebreaker for the third. Say what garbage. Number ten Eight-game pro set, regular scoring, or eight-game pro set, no ad. And, my golly, they dreamed up this ridiculous thing now. They did doubles. Come on now, folks. Are you ready for this? One set of doubles, no ad scoring. Are you kidding me? Why would you ever practice doubles when it comes down just to luck in a kumbaya experience that day? Holy guacamole, it is not worth it. Anyhow, I had to bring that up because down at the Eddie Hurd tournament, even at the Eddie Hurd and the 12 and unders, they were playing tiebreaker for third. But the Hokey Pokey show and the rules committee over there at the USTA for kids, what are you guys thinking? What are you guys thinking? Are all you guys just social players that like it because it's over fast and you don't get winded? It really is destroying the development of our youngsters. Anyhow, we're supposed to talk about meat and potatoes, coaching that was been here for the last 100 years, and we're going to get to that here in a second. We'll be right back. This is Coach Chuck Creasy with American Tennis. Coach Chuck Creasy and go to Amazon.com and order my book, Coaching Tennis. Folks, Coaching Tennis now is sold over 40,000 copies in the United States and around the world. It's one of the most thorough books that you will be able to find to work with your youngsters or to work with your tennis game. It's called Coaching Tennis by Coach Chuck Creasy. That's me, and you can go to Amazon and buy one today. Great Christmas gift, coaching tennis. Fuel, it isn't ours, and wearing cotton, we didn't grow. 
we're making them in America, and folks, there are meat and potato fundamentals about making players in America that I don't think have changed in 100 years. And I wanted to try to give you a few things to hold on to as you work with youngsters on the tennis court, in the classroom, your own children. And, uh, you know, I, I'm going to bring out a few points here I think you can uh, – going to hang on to. And I'll give you a few little bit of loaded language. First of all, Coach Tom Landry, I, I love this quote. I love uh, one of the first books I ever read was a book on, it was called uh, Coaching Perfection, Tom Landry. It, it was on the front cover. And that helped me um, a lot when I first started. And of course, Coach Johnny Wooden, they call me coach. And I, I bring up books like the talent code of course i i really look for diamonds everywhere you know and i one of the things i tell youngsters always you got to be a diamond hunter you've got to look for the diamonds everywhere because it's not the it, look we're, it's not a problem with information like it was when we were youngsters growing up or at least me i don't know how old you are listen to but when we were growing up we just we, we were starving for information, but now that there's so much information out there, it's pretty much like drinking water out of a fire hose, as I said, trying to look for those nuggets here and there. And then it's, a, it's about trying to hold on to it. And there's most kids think there's nothing new under the sun. Well, that's true as far as information is concerned, but it really has to be something that grabs hold and, and you can hold on to. But I'll I'll tell you uh, three quick quotes here that I remembered growing up, and um, I, I've clung to these. One by Tom Landry, and and he said that in the book it said that the, the job of a coach is getting people to do things they don't want to do in order to have things they want to have. Of course, Johnny Wooden had his um, wonderful sayings and his one of the things that I hung on to, I think it was probably the start of the second chapter, they call me coach, it said, learn as if you'll live forever, live as if you'll die tomorrow. And uh, that was a Johnny Wooden quote that stuck with me. Clarence Mabry, one of the biggest diamonds I ever got in my coaching life was Coach Clarence Mabry, who, the great coach who for 20 years, they were in the top five in the United States at Trinity University. What a great legacy there. So many great champions, Wimbledon champions, NCAA champions, and just a fantastic uh, coach, well-respected. In 1980, at the National Teachers Conference in New York City, um, Roosevelt Hotel, I still remember, I went into his talk because I wanted to learn from Clarence. And uh, the last, and I don't remember a whole lot about his talk except the last question someone asked was, Coach Mabry, what is the most important quality of a championship tennis player? And he scratched his chin and he said, most definitely the hunger of an inquisitive mind. And he says, once your players start asking questions, trying to figure things out, they are well on their way. I got uh, yesterday at practice, I got quite excited. I have a our number one player right now. Um, I, I told everybody he has made the true transition from being someone who plays tennis to being a tennis player. He is searching now for the answers. He hunts for the answers. There's a completely different demeanor on this young man. He uses all of his time all of his opportunities, all of his training, as if he is investing it for the future. And it's really, really fantastic. It is really, really fantastic. But I wanted to bring up a couple things you maybe will be, hang on to, be able to hang on to as well. Uh, I heard a talk, golly, back my first year coaching in Atlanta, and I wish I could remember I would give credit to the coach that gave the talk. But he said, People are motivated for six reasons, financial reward, material reward, appreciation, association, self-improvement, or service to others. And he went back and uh, talked about these, but really a
funny thing was he said, you know, coaching is one of those things, I guess you could sort of rule out the first two, the financial reward and material reward. He said, if you look at that, you've got to understand you've got to be into service, hopefully self-improvement, but appreciation and association goes a long way. But he said, I'm still looking for that uh, financial and material reward. And he said, yeah, he said, just talking about the old baseball coach at my school, one day he lived in a neighborhood that looked a little rough, and he said he heard a burglar break into his house as the that night and he snuck downstairs he had he got his shotgun he snuck downstairs and he pointed at the burglar and put said put your hands up and the burglar said don't shoot don't shoot i'm just looking for money and the coach goes well let me put my gun down and help you look man <laughs> so it that it pretty much sums up what coaches if you think you're getting into coaching for the money or teaching for the money it it's not so but those six reasons I've sort of tried to uh, when I work with people I try to assess are they in the financial or material reward do they want their name on a plaque or do they want to be famous is it um, things that they're into is it association do they like just being part of the team association is it appreciate everybody wants to be appreciated yeah, you've got to pass out appreciation at the right time or it doesn't matter. It's laughable how we try to pass out appreciation things all the time. But it, appreciation is best after it comes along with an achievement. Self-improvement. While you love it when someone tries to start working on self-improvement and service to others is a very, very, uh, golly, it's a very much an adult virtue, I think, service to others. It takes time. You can teach youngsters to start doing it, but it but it but surely takes time. It is such a difference between uh, <laughs> the different areas. I've been able to teach all over the world, but the north and the south, there's surely surely differences. I <laughs> when I used to teach up in New York, uh, you know, people was all they're always very tough, 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 but very curt and short. And in D.C. also, but. The story sort of goes there that in New York City, the research has been done, but it takes 2.3 seconds for somebody to lay on the horn if you wait too long at a traffic light. In the same situation in D.C., it takes 2.9 seconds for somebody to lay on the horn when you're stuck. But in the South, it takes 3.8 seconds for the person behind you to get out of the car come up knock on the window and says everything okay on everything okay in there honey and uh so the joke goes but it's very very true and i uh but the only reason i brought that up was when i first started teaching up in uh, maryland there was a group of youngsters and the coach who was there was introducing me to the group of youngsters, and they were all 10, 11, 12-year-olds. And the coach was going, now this is Coach Creasy, and uh, he's this and this and this. And he said, what? And the coach says, well, what do you do when when a, when there's, there's, a, there's a, a stranger here? And what this one little girl said, run away. And I thought I would die. It was hilarious, you know, and uh, just a little bit different than, uh, you know, coaching in the South. But people are the same everywhere. Kids are the same everywhere. It's just that we wear different clothing, different masks, different, I don't want to mean different clothing, different armor, different armor to protect ourselves. A lot of people don't like going past cliches and facts. They don't even like going to opinion, talk about politics or things. You're not supposed to anymore. Opinion, feelings, and needs don't go there. This is why we're not coaching the hearts. So but those are some head, heads up things. You know, Coach um, Tony Dungy said, you know, when, when people don't do, when we're working with people, 
just always remember either they can't do, won't do, or only do. I try to assess that as much as I can. Sometimes people just can't do a certain things. People sometimes don't have empathy towards us. Some times people can't see things bigger than themselves around because they haven't been trained. Sometimes they can't carry out a certain task. I mean, and no one has, no one likes to hear can't out of a youngster. Um, when I hear can't, I usually will tell a youngster that it's just not easy enough for you right now. Is that it? Um, you know, you haven't practiced at it long enough, correct? But, you know, the human beings can, can do so many things. So I hate that the can't do. It's usually not about can't do. Usually it's won't do and only do. So in starting out that, and then the fundamentals of ability plus desire plus opportunity I've spoken about so many times on the program, Nurture Nature Self, you, if you could sort of size up who you're working with, and just sort of say on a scale of one to ten, and I'll get my players to do this. I'll get youngsters to do this. When I did camps, I would get a hundred kids at once to says I, and to tell them, I want you to size up what your God-given ability is on a scale of one to ten, and how much opportunity you have had. All those years of doing camps, I would always make a big deal. I would ask, raise your hand if you paid your own way here to camp. A lot of times, none of them, but if I'd say, how many of you paid half of your way to camp? We'd always have one or two, so I would always make a big deal out of, I know that you will be locked in this entire week. You would have, They will have the hunger of an inquisitive mind once they understand price and value in, in working hard for, for these things. So, you know, the ability, desire, and then the opportunities. The opportunities are given by parents, ability by the good Lord. You know, God gives you the ability, opportunities by parents, coaches, and teachers. The desire is up to the individual. Those things are all constants you can't do much about. Then a fundamental. Here is the biggest fundamental today. In coaching today, it's not about not enough opportunities. It's not usually the bill. It's 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 you know, the biggest biggest fight is the fight to overcome tweenerism, tweenerism. The tweenerism, the people who sort of are posers and like to pose like they're doing something outstanding, but they aren't. And shamefully, a lot of our youngsters have become tweeners because they've learned how and it's been tolerated. They'll fake really caring, and they'll fake, gosh, mysterious injuries. The amount of mysterious injuries that come up when it gets tough is just amazing. And knock on wood, do you know, in my 47 years of of coaching now, I've only seen two acute injuries ever, ever in the thousands of tennis matches I've seen. They're always chronic injuries things that should have been taken care of before they went to the court. It's a sore shoulder, a sore arm. I saw just a two, two acute injuries where it was dire need necessity for a match to stop. Now, there's always the heat issue, and I've seen a few players have problems with heat, especially in college after a Friday night out, if you know what I mean. After a Friday night out partying, I would always tell the guys in college, even one beer would lower the heat tolerance for 48 hours. Very sad thing was I was up at Kalamazoo. God, it's been over 10 years ago, and it was pretty hot. It was like 80s or something like that, and a couple of the referees were running around panicking. Oh, my gosh, it's too hot. We've had six defaults because of heat. Injury, heat issues, and of course we live in the South or Texas or Florida. You're just laughing. Hot in Michigan is not hot in Florida, and and I was this oh first round matches. Okay, what do we size up here? Okay, 18 and under boys there on the road. These boys been drinking. <laughs> the partying or the drinking. 
yep, the heat tolerance goes down quite a bit when people uh, drink even one beer. But the kids that, and that's the problem when you have a 256 draw or whatever they have up there, because a lot of the kids, the end end game is just get to the tournament. It's not to win once they're there. So you champion the week, you weaken the real champions when you allow these just the tournament to be so big at Kalamazoo. What a mistake! What a mistake! They um, look. I, I used to be on that tournament committee, and they would argue the best thing they ever did for one year. They made you have to qualify to get into Kalamazoo, the last 16 spots or whatever. That was fantastic. Fantastic. Earn those last spots in. But now they just put everybody in and they give a bye to this best top 64 players or something. And it really is a lot of cosmetics. But in the end, there's a lot of kids are not there to try to win a national championship they're 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 just as as the reward just making that tournament and it's just like making a high school team or a college team when you don't cut anyone uh when you champion a week you weaken the real champions you dilute the event and it's it's too bad but the tweenerism again uh there's wimpy's wine wimpy whiner wieners and winners I had to tell my children, the wimpies are the kids that lay out all the time. The whiners are the kids that do the work but complain. And don't ever be a complaining parent, by the way. It looks so it, no, it No, it doesn't look so bad. It is so bad for your youngster if you ever run interference for your youngster. Let them learn about sports. Take it on the chin. Grow, win, lose based on their own merit. Parents, stay out of it when it comes down to try and don't keep fighting for a fair shake for your kids. Other than don't let them play, I would go to the tournament direct and complain 100% of the time if they're playing abbreviated scoring. So Wimpy's whiners, wieners, the wieners are the tweeners. The wieners are the tweeners. A lot of stuff just is not good uh, for we we fight this a lot because tweenerism has been perfected because we can promote an image. The kids can promote an image that looks like they're all in and we've got all the slogans and the sayings and the equipment and everything, but there is a big, big difference. And I'll be the first to say that even my team here and I've coached at a fantastic place where where challenges and uh, hardships and and uh, opportunities are all have to be worked for, worked through. But even my team, I have probably half the guys my, are all in, and we have some of the guys. They do all the work. They they become tweeners. They're, they're not all in. And it's so noticeable what has happened to my number one player and about three or four other guys that really are all in. They're all in with their body, their mind, and their spirit. Okay, so the tweenerism is something you're going to always have to fight. Um, you know, it's uh, a couple of videos I've had time to play them. Go and listen to <laughs> Of course, I love the movie Whiplash. But there also is a movie, old John Wayne movie called The Cowboys. And recently on the Internet I saw a a little video about John Wayne getting on this kid who was a stutter. And he got right in the kid's face and told him, you know, started screaming at him. And he said, I can't speak well enough. And he said, I'm tired of hearing you complain about your you know, way you're talking, get over that right now and scream down. The kid got back in his face, starts screaming at John Wayne, and he said, say it again. He said, say it again. And then finally he goes, uh, and it's, uh, folks, it's really great. You go, it's it's called, it's called The Cowboys, and it's called Speech Therapy, Speech Therapy, The Cowboys. Go on YouTube and find it. But the guy ends up, little kid ends up cussing John Wayne, and he, he says, yell it louder. 
And then he does, and he said, son, I, I wouldn't be speaking to me too many times like that. And then he walks away, and then the kid says, wow, I didn't stutter anymore. <laughs> and it, it was pretty good stuff. But the long and the short of it is the tweenerism is a disease all of us and everybody gets. Um, everything life is much easier than it's been. Success, real success is still hard, but but uh, fake successes are not. In trying to make diamonds, diamonds, it's, it's diamonds and making diamonds is still really, really hard. But the rhinestones are plentiful. They're out there. And uh, we champion the week so much that we really don't know who the real champions are. Really. So anyhow, fear. Okay, fear. We always talk about fear. Fear of the unknown, the black door. I've talked about that. Fear. There's not too much fear of failure. That's sort of an old school. Fear of failure is an old school fear. Kids aren't afraid of failing. You know why? Because we always prop them up when they when they fail, we don't usually allow them to hurt or to suffer like they need to. Um, golly, I've recently had a youngster, youngster that I was, I was saying, look, uh, the problem, uh, I've got to care less until you care more. I'm not, I hate to pull back from you, but I got to care less till you care more. It's bothering me a little bit more about how you did, and it bothers you. Um, what I like to see in a youngster is where there's deep pain, where they hurt, but they learn how to turn their bad pain into good pain. Real quick thing there on winning and losing that, that is a good fundamental. Never let wins go to your head or losses go to your heart. However, you want wins to go to your heart for confidence, losses to go to your head for learning. Now, that means, though, that losing should hurt. Doing poorly should hurt. Flunking a test should hurt. Letting someone down should hurt. When you hurt, when there's pain, you're going to move from the pain and try to make it better next time. Guess what? Winning should feel good. When you play tiebreakers for the third set, it doesn't quite hurt enough. It doesn't quite feel good enough when you win. Tiebreakers for the third set don't do that. By the way, no ad does not hurt enough when you lose. Well, you are upset a lot of times because very often three points are the three points are the difference between six three or three six in no ad scoring. Please, parents, you've got to Go to my website and try to look for this or let me know, but I'll send you a handout on the damage that NOAD does to your child's development. It's There's nothing worse out there than the 10-point tiebreakers or no, NOAD. But failure needs to hurt. It moves you. The one common ingredient that happens when somebody becomes great instead of just good is that they hate losing a little bit more. You only win to the level that you cannot stand losing down to in tennis. When it's done, though, you have to turn the bad pain into good pain. So what do you do? The bad pain, if the youngster is good uh, as far as a worker and a great kid and they do the right things, when they lose, tell them to write down what they got to work on and then tell them to go take a run, go running. And then let them get back on the court that day if you're a coach and get a win. I don't care if it's your grandma, his grandma or her grandma. I don't care if it's a team manager. Get them a win right away if they've, if they've just taken this loss. Now, as far as when they win, though, let them sit on it. Now, if your youngster's lazy, this is a very important thing. If your youngster's not working hard and they get a bad loss, make them sit on it. For four or five days, and most of the time the youngster will say, "I want to play them again. I want to play them again." I always say, "No, no, no, no. They're they're better than you now. They they've done the work. They move past you. Maybe later. Maybe later. Make the kid sit on a loss if he hasn't been working hard. Make him suffer and let, allow him to get upset about it. And when you see him back on the court working hard enough, then you give him a chance to redeem himself." Not until. 
but make him simmer for four, five, or six days. Now, if the youngster is a bad kid or been doing, sorry, not a bad kid, but doing the wrong things, and he wins and he's cocky or she's cocky, get them beat right away. Get the best player in your organization, have them smack the kid down 6-0 or 6-1, and say, look, if you don't do the right thing, the tennis gods will not reward you. You must honor the game or the game will not honor you. The fear of the unknown, the black door, I'm not going to go over that. Fear of failure is not out there so much anymore. We need to create it somehow, but the fear of success is a big one. I call it the curse of the Spider-Man, of course, because with great power comes great responsibility. Too much is given, much is expected. A lot of kids get afraid of winning because they know that if they win, there's going to be more expected out of them the next time. It's like when you start making A's in school. Your parents are going to expect you to make A's again and again and again. You know, one time I had a player. I said, Coach, Coach, I'm going to show you I'm going to make great grades. The player was a 2.5 grade point average for two and a half years. I said, okay, show me, man. And so he got fired up, and he made a 3.4. I said, way to go. Well, the next semester, you know what he did? He went back to a 2.5, almost as if that was the magnet brought him back to his home base. But there is more pressure with achievement. A lot of players almost fail on purpose because they sense that the arena and the demands are going to be much, much harder when they start succeeding. Another fundamental, and I want to, uh, this is the most important, pass it on. Pass it on, a fundamental of coaching. The best thing that you can do is use a three-tier mentoring program which I call my serve it back program, a little catchy there. I got a quote, a lady named Miss Pat Springlemeyer on that one, serve it back. Everybody needs someone above them to teach them. Everyone needs someone below them that they can teach, and everyone needs to have that same level peer accountability partner, or two or three or five or eight or 30 that are at the same level, that will hold them accountable to a higher standard. And as the water rises, so will every ship in that harbor, as they say. So if you have a couple accountability partners and they start getting better, your player will as well. But you need someone above, someone below, and then even. It's a three-tier program. You need the teacher, the peer, and the student. So if you have a 14-year-old youngster and they can find a 16-year-old that will mentor them, and that 16-year-old is getting mentored by an 18-year-old, but that 14-year-old that I talked about initially then must mentor a 12-year-old or someone below them, and that 12-year-old must mentor their little brother or sister. And by the way, that 14-year-old then must have two or three other 14-year-olds that holds them accountable. Coaching has not changed in the past how many years? Since I've been in it, it's changed with the technical part of it, the tactical part of it some, but coaching of the heart and coaching the human, the youngsters has not changed. They're meat and potato fundamentals. And a lot of it is what is their ability and, you know, their desire, their opportunity and what motivates them, the financial reward, material reward, self-improvement, service to others, association, appreciation, and I got those out of line there, but um, you understand what I'm saying. But the fighting of the tweenerism is huge. And um, I, I think we have an epidemic of tweenerism in the United States of America. And there's so many things that we do wrong as parents, as coaches, as teachers, when we reward the weak. And participation, oh, my golly, folks, again, participation never breeds excellence. Excellence will breed participation. But we have so many, uh, we've just brought along the cabooses 
and let them hang out with the engines long enough, we think that the caboosers are going to learn how to be the engines. Um, once again, I'm going to quote uh, what I learned from my friend, that there are kids that have it and bring it. There's kids that have it but don't bring it. Get rid of those ones. You have kids that don't have it, but they bring it and keep those those guys around. And if they don't have it and don't bring it, those four different categories, they don't have it and don't bring it, you've got don't even mess with that with that group of youngsters. But again, there's the fighting of the tweenerism is is a huge deal. Fear is always there. If you dare, if you care, fear and pressure will always be there. If you dare, if you care, fear and pressure will be there. But you must not submit to the fear. You must go through the black door of fear. You must go forward and understand. You must name it, claim it, and tame it. Don't name it, claim it, blame it. Or like today, you know what a tweener does? A tweener names it, blames it, and then rearranges it. That's why that's the tweener way of dealing with fear. And then last of all, pass it on. So why are we in coaching? Why are we in teaching? Why would we ever want to be a parent if we knew how hard it was? Man, oh man, oh man. It is it is really, really a tough deal. Look, this little thing I'm going to tell you now uh, is is pretty big. Every child is unique individual. And I've always told the people I work with and I've always taught the youngsters um, and parents, I would say, be number one in the world of being yourself. You're number one in the world of being yourself. And it, it, it be the best version of yourself. Plant where you are, grow where you're planted, and use whatever you have is around you. But but there there's a... A big, big thing that that we need to always remember about the youngsters that they are always in the process, always in the process of changing, always in the process of growing, always in the process of doing things where you go, holy cow, that's fantastic, always in the process of maybe disappointing you. But the point is let them be who they are, nurture who that is, and when you look at goals down the road, remember, they don't have the ability to take in as much as an adult has already gone through. They don't have the ability yet. They might have the capacity, but they don't have the ability to sort of sort through it all. But I like to keep fog on top of the mountain until the kids are too high up to turn back. In other words, I don't show them everything at once. I show them when they're ready to digest it. If you take them, if they're junior in high school and you take them to too many NBA games, they might get scared. You know, it might too too tough, too tough, too hard. Take them to the next level. Take them to maybe a small college game or something where the youngster can say, hey, I can do that. And that's why tournaments a lot of times are good with different age groups is that I know uh, for my son, for example, in baseball, when he was playing at 10 and under, he would go see the 14 and under kids, and he would go sort of sizing up, hey, I can do that. Now I'm taking him to some baseball games in high school and stuff because I want him to say, hey, I can do that. Now look, I, we went to one Atlanta Braves game. That was exciting, but I wouldn't do it all the time. I don't want him to say, whoa, whoa, that's too far of a stretch. But it's just inch by inch, it's a cinch, yard by yard is too darn hard. Well, keep fog on top of the mountain until the kids are too high up to turn back. And it is darn hard to do that now with that silly Internet because they just are exposed to so much, isn't it? Part of being good at stuff was the mystery about how hard it is. We never know how hard it is. The mystery is that it is just that and not knowing. That allows you to take one step at a time and the next step and the next step. But um, the mentoring is big and, and just understanding when you're working with youngsters that it's always a work in pro progress. And and here, I, last, I want, I want to say this. I always go back. I was working with this goofy kid, 
And the kid at 12 years old was so spastic. He couldn't even hardly, can I say spastic, I guess. he know I know him very well, and he's been in tennis his whole life. But he couldn't even hardly walk, chew bubble gum, and swing a racket. He'd swing and miss. And then there was a time where I didn't see him for about three weeks, and he came back out to the courts. And we had that HSE, you know, the holy shit effect. Holy shit, what just happened? Oh, my, what just happened? And the guy got it. He ended up being a college player. He's a teaching pro now. He's been in a lot. But I go, what just happened? But kids, that's why you work with kids. It's just so fantastic to uh, see what happens with them a lot of times. So, well, listen, stay in the game. Help out where you can. Thanks for the work you do. I want to remind you that you're in the process of winning or losing every day of your life, and it has very little to do with a win or a loss. And we'll be back next week. Come